Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you today. Great to be with you here at LBC, which well, Hayden and I are at the moment, but it's great to be in this spot too today. Um, our youngest grandchild is in the habit at the moment of saying to me, Grandma, listen to me and don't stop listening until I tell you to. <laughs> It's probably an indication of something. Now, you might have had something similar, perhaps from a child, or um, see some grandparents laughing here, um, or perhaps you've heard something similar from a friend, a colleague, or uh, even your partner, perhaps not quite that same language, but the point is there. Listen to me, really listen to me. But listening to understand another person is quite an art, don't you think? So have a think for a minute. Is there anyone that you know that is a good listener? So does a name come to mind when I ask that question? Do you know anyone who's a good listener? And if a name comes into your mind, then what is it about that person that, that makes you sort of confident to say that? In fact, why don't you take a couple of minutes, we've got a slide that'll come up in a minute with those questions on just to remind you, and just chat about that with the people sitting next to you. How do you know when someone is really listening to understand you, and how does that feel? to be listened to. They may not be on the slide, you'll have to remember. <laughs> How do you know when someone is listening and what does that feel like? Take a minute or two. Okay, I can see some people practicing wonderful listening body language, turned in, leaning in, awesome. Okay, I've got another question to ask you, but not to share your answers with the person next to you. You don't have to do that with this one. It'll come up on the next slide again too. Just answer this to yourself as honestly as you can. Do you think people find you easy or hard to talk with? Oh, some, oh, I've got some easies and hards. Keep it to yourself, but you can share if you want. <laughs> I wonder if the easy and the hard were sitting next to each other. That would be interesting. So, yeah, think about that. Do you reckon people find you easy, approachable, or, or hard to talk with? Um, and, and, and why might that be so? Have a think about that in your own heads for a minute. If you want to share it with someone, you can, if you're not shy about that. It's an inter interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> some of you might be answering, oh, well, in some circumstances or some people <laughs> feel it this way, other people experience me the other way. Okay. Alrighty. Now, one thing that I grow more and more sure about as I get older is that listening to understand another person really, really matters. And listening to understand another person is really, really hard to do very well. 
is so much easier, I find at least, and I hope I'm not alone, I'm sure I'm not alone, to be thinking as someone else is talking even about the ways I'm going to correct or convince or commend them if they happen to be expressing an opinion that is um, equivalent to my own. Sometimes it's easier to think of almost anything other than what the person is talking about, like my shopping list or how beautiful the daffodils look in the garden or you know, a movie that I particularly want to watch. Listening is hard. And I'd go as far as to say and want to suggest to you today that listening is actually a spiritual discipline. It's spiritual because it's got to do with us being made in the image of a relational God. And it's a discipline because it only happens with persevering, intentional, hard work and practice. So spiritual discipline. And I think that it's a spiritual discipline we need more than ever to be learning right now to be good at. You know, all throughout history, when groups of people have followed Jesus, they've been known as people who are radical in some way. And I know that word radical is kind of a little bit tainted perhaps now, but radical in good ways. You know, historically, followers of Jesus have stood out from their culture, from, from the norms of their community in radical ways, radical in good ways. And I want to suggest to you that being radical Jesus followers right now will see us willing to listen, really listen to understand the stories and experiences of other people. And if you're straight away thinking, doesn't sound that radical, <laughs> learning to listen to other people, well, think about this. I think it is actually radical because everywhere we look right now, many people have stopped listening. The cultural norm right now is to take up a stronghold position, often at one end of a polarising continuum, which might be to do with politics or religion or sexuality or refugees or, you know, the environment. So that's the norm. Take up a stronghold position, usually at one of the polarising positions on those continuums. And there's a lot of strident talking happening now. But I wonder how much listening is going on. How radical would it be if we, the people who follow Jesus, could lean in and listen with that view of wanting to understand each other's stories, to understand what life is like for the other? Now, Jesus, of course, even back when he was here on this earth, he did it all the time. He met with and he sat with people in their own narratives in order to understand them. So we've got Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus and the parents who brought their children to be blessed. Jesus and Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus and the woman who was nearly stoned to death. Uh, Jesus and the blind man. Jesus and the hungry crowds. Jesus with the little boy with the packed lunch. And Jesus with that woman who um, had been you know, bleeding for, for many, many years. So there's some of the stories. We're not going to look at them. What I want to do today is have a look at some other stories about the way Jesus was with people that are recorded for us in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to kind of dip through the whole chapter. We won't read it all out loud, but if you've got it on your devices or in your paper Bible there, you might like to get it open in front of you. And just before we go into Matthew 8, I want to read you the last couple of verses of Matthew 7 because they, um, they speak to what we're going to be looking at here. So the end of Matthew 7 says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. <laughs> 
And then it's almost as if somebody in the crowd has said to Matthew, yeah, okay, he's, he speaks with authority, but does he really have authority? And Matthew spends chapters 8 and 9, although we're only going to look at 8 today, proving, if you like, the integrity of the authority that Jesus speaks with. And he does that by looking at everyday um, life interactions that Jesus has with people. It's a little bit like chapter 8 and into 9, if you want to look at that later, is a, you know, a street cred test. <laughs> okay, he sounds like he's got authority, but does he? And then in these chapters, Matthew's really unpacking how true that might be. And I love how Matthew starts here. He starts with the story of a Jew, a Jewish man who's a leper, and then he goes straight to the story of a Roman centurion, so a non-Jew, these two both, in the story that we will read, recognise the authority of Jesus to heal and restore them. And in this little simple way, story about a Jew who sees authority in Jesus, story about a Gentile, Matthew is making the point right up here at the front of the chapter, Jesus is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Jesus is for everyone. All right, so let's read the first story. It's in Matthew 8, uh, verses 1 to 4. Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. So this Jewish man had no doubt about the authority of Jesus. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And then Jesus said to him, Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. Now, I don't think Jesus was telling him you've got to keep this a secret. But he was making the point, I've healed you, but there's still uh, the process of you being restored to community, and there's some rules about how to do that. Go do them real quick. Then you can celebrate. So leprosy. Most of us know that it's a highly contagious skin disease. I think, in fact, the term is a catch-all for a number of different um, highly contagious skin diseases. And, of course, in Jesus' day, there was no treatment available. So if you, if you got one of these skin diseases, you would end up seriously unwell, maybe even to death, physically disfigured and banished from community, literally made to live outside the villages so you could have no contact with healthy people. I'll tell you what, looking at that image that we have back on the title slide, nobody was sitting in the narratives of a person with leprosy, okay? They were far, far away. So can you imagine then... Um, I love that word, suddenly the leper appeared. It must have been sudden, because, you know, if people had noticed, they would have been telling him to shove off. Can you, can you imagine the crowd's horror, the indrawn breath of horror, <gasps> when they realised that this, this guy is, is coming to a crowded place? I mean, how rude of him to put all the healthy, normal people in danger if they accidentally touched him. And then, you know, this indrawn breath of horror at that. Can you imagine the gasps of disbelief and revulsion as Jesus reached out and touched him? Oh, why would you do that? Don't touch him. But Jesus does. He reaches out 
and he touches the man and he heals his body and then he sends him away to be restored into community. And I love that tiny little story. It's the good news. It's a cameo version of, of the good news of Jesus in action. Can you hear it? People, all people, rich, poor, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, whatever dichotomy you want to put in there, all people healed and restored to community. Right there in that little story is the gospel. Okay, in the next story, the Roman centurion clearly has no doubt about Jesus' authority either. And he, he knows Jesus can heal a servant in his household who is suffering terribly. And the story tells us that Jesus does, without even going there. And then from this point, um, Jesus' authority it continues. You can almost see it like a surging wave through the rest of the chapter as Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and many others, and towards the end of the chapter does some other extraordinary things too with nature and, and uh, in this whole spiritual realm of demon possession. So let's listen, uh, pick up the story again at uh, Matthew 8, verse 14, where Peter arrives, uh, Jesus arrives at Peter's house. It says there, when Jesus arrived at Peter's house... <laughs> Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. How practical a healing was that? <laughs> that evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, He took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. And you can look that up in the original in Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Okay, and now we start to see not only that Jesus has genuine authority, so remember Matthew was at pains to say, it's not just that he sounds like he's got authority, he does have genuine authority, stuff happens when he speaks. So we're seeing not only that Jesus has genuine authority, not only that it is for all people, to recognise and call upon, but also something about the purpose and sphere of influence of Jesus' authority. And this is where we, we are, I promise, getting to that sitting in other people's narratives aspect here. So Jesus has authority in order to heal and restore people to community. That's what the authority is for, right? And then that makes sense then. There's a logical connection to the, the fact that that authority is therefore for the broken and hurting places. And that's true in both the tangible physical world and the non-physical world. And the last two healing stories in Matthew 8, they reinforce this. So um, we won't read it now, but if you have a look at it, you'll see Jesus uh, uses his authority to calm the storm. Uh, so his authority over nature. And he also calms the fears of his friends. And he uses his authority over the shadowy forces of evil when he uh, heals and restores those two demon-possessed men to community. Now Matthew really wants his readers to see that Jesus does have absolute authority. It's not just words. But that authority is not for its own sake. And it's not even for Jesus' own sake. It's not an authority that means that Jesus can say, look at this, it proves how powerful I am. That's not what that authority is about. You see, Jesus has authority given to him by God for the sake of others. 
It's authority for the sake of other people. He has authority for that particular purpose of stepping into people's stories, especially where there's vulnerability, brokenness, grief, loss, hurt. He has authority to bring a healing that restores people to community with God, with each other, and in fact with all of our creation. That's what his authority is for. Jesus' authority is for the sake of people. And so it's going to be found wherever people have need of being healed and restored. It's going to be found, Jesus' authority is going to be found in the suffering places. And so you can understand why Jesus talks about uh, the cost of following him in verses 18 to 22 there. Again, if you have a chance to look at those verses later, you'll see that Jesus uses some examples to describe the cost. And I want to emphasize that. He's describing the cost there. He's not prescribing it to you. So one of the things he talks about is, you you know, you might not have a, a place to lay your head at night. In fact, you may well end up still having a home to go to at night. You may not, but you may. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is that to follow him means sitting with others and listening to understand them. And this will inevitably mean sitting and listening to some difficult stories in difficult places, and that will cost us something. That will cost us something. Okay, how are you tracking so far? Are you okay with the idea that Jesus invites us to participate in what he is doing in the world in a particular way of leaning in and listening to understand what life is like for other people? Can you nod at that? Do you have questions about that? I wonder if some might be thinking that, yeah, that's okay in as far as it goes, but Karen, it's not enough. It's a little bit wishy-washy. It's a little bit stopping short of where we would really like for this to go. What about telling people the truth? And what about showing them how they ought to respond to it? Well, I want to point us all back to the stories of Jesus and his interactions, the way he was with people. His uh, friend John described him beautifully, I think, um, as full of grace and truth. That's how John describes Jesus. And I'll encourage you, if it's not already clear in your mind, to go and look at some of the Gospels and take note of the fact of the matter that when Jesus interacts with people, particularly where people are vulnerable, he leads every time with grace. He steps into those spaces first with grace. He leads with grace. And yes, When you read those stories through, in time, many people do decide that they can trust him and and they call on his authority, you know, to to help them find their way. And, And we do see that their lives end up being transformed by the new things or the truths, if you like, that they have learnt. But can you see that this has always begun when they first step onto a pathway of grace? Lead with grace. Grace first. And it's somehow that pathway of leaning in with grace makes space for people to be face, choose to face some of the things, some of the truths that they may need to embrace 
to live the transformed lives that they are called to. I don't think it's splitting hairs. I think it matters. And I wonder if we have made faith too much about an intellectual acquiescence to God's authority and truth, as if those things exist for their own sake and outside of relationships. I don't think they do. I don't think they exist for their own sake. And they don't exist outside of relationship. God himself is relationship. So, you know, if, if we devalue our essential identity as image bearers of a relational God, well, that makes it very easy for us to take up uh, positions on all sorts of things like heaven and hell, unemployment, indigenous peoples, uh, how to raise your children, and even on our faith without reference to the context of actual relationships. We can have opinions on these things without reference to our own relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And I think that's dangerous. I think we're likely to lose a grip of grace in those circumstances. It's not that we don't have opinions, but can you see what I'm saying? If they're not tethered to grace, then I think we're in trouble. Now, when faith stops being a relationship, it's easy for us to stand at a distance and tell people what they should believe. Oh, gosh, it would be so much easier if I could just do that, hey? <laughs> if you could just do that, if we could just do that. Sit still. Give me 10 minutes even. I'll tell you what you should believe and we can all move on. And, you know, in a world that seems to be getting more confusing every day, I think that many of us are drawn to this long-distance truth-telling because it's such a useful way of protecting ourselves from ideas and stories and experiences that actually might be quite disruptive and challenging <laughs> to my own understanding of life and my own experience of faith if I stop and actually engage with them. And that's a little scary. That's a little scary. Sometimes I wonder if we have taken on the role, uh, we think, you know, Jesus' follower is, is synony synonymous with protecting God and the church as if they're things that we can control and manage to start with, duh. <laughs> and as if that's what following Jesus means. I'm called to follow Jesus, so I'll protect God and the church. I read something last week that brought this question of control and managing God and others home to me personally with a jolt. It was written by Father Richard Raw, And he asked this question in something I was reading. If we spend all day controlling and blocking others, why would we change when we kneel to pray? So if I can't listen to you because I am so busy defending me and maybe God and the church, am I really going to be listening to God? That kind of slugged me when I read that. So I guess what I want to say if, is, before we get into some practicalities of the, of the learning to sit in each other's narratives, if, if what you've heard at least so far today makes you in any way feel uncomfortable, I want to invite you to sit with it for a little while. Please do more than that. Test it, think about it, pray about it. Read the Bible for yourself about these things. But sit with it for a while. Don't dismiss it. Talk with God and with others. Take some time to interrogate you know, what it is that makes you feel uncomfortable or what it is that's maybe drawing you. It might be interesting to see where that takes you. So I encourage you to that. Okay.
So if the authority of Jesus works to bring all people who respond to it healing uh, and, and to restore us to community, and when I say that, I'm talking about restored relationship with God, with each other, and in fact with all of the created world. And if we who follow Jesus, like Jesus, are called to sit in other people's stories and narratives to understand their experience of life, what can we do to be better at that? What can we do to be better at that? And Josh, when uh, we were talking about this, this couple of Sundays preaching, he said, in this one, could you bring some of the things that you have learned over your life, Karen, um, about, about this? So I'm, I'm going to bring to you some of the things that I've learned by looking at the life of Jesus and from five decades of living intentionally with him so far. I've been alive for longer than five decades. So, but, um, you know, the time that I've sort of intentionally been living... Uh, with, with Jesus, so I, I want to bring you those things. These are not things, let me say up front, that I have mastered. That's the discipline bit of spiritual discipline. <laughs> there are things I have to remind myself, relearn and keep practicing. Just ask Hayden, who knows me best. <laughs> but they are practices I find helpful. Sometimes I wander right away from them, and I have to go, oh, hang on a minute, I need to go back to the basics of remembering these things. But they are things that I have found helpful. The very first is that when I open my eyes in the morning, or at least once my brain is engaged for the day, I try and remember to remind myself of the grace with which Jesus stepped into my story. Jesus did not stand far, far away from me and yell truths at me and tell me if I needed to buck up and change this and change that in order to come and get close to him. That's not how it works. That's not how I experienced it. He came right into my story and he listened. <coughs> So I try and remind myself of, of, of the grace that has been gifted to me. He'll do that for any of us. If you haven't experienced it and it intrigues you, I hope there's someone here safe you can talk to to ask about that. So remember the grace gifted to you. You were not assaulted from afar by Jesus, I, I'm guessing. Then these things, listen intentionally. There's no rocket science in any of these, so I'm sorry if you were looking for some. Basically, it's, it's, it's to make a choice to be with people. So make time, be the boss of your own diary. I'm so struck by the way that Jesus did this. You know, he stopped, he was heading somewhere, but he stopped to call that short tax collector out of a tree. Again, he was heading somewhere and he stopped in this pressing crowd to say, who touched me? You know, he had a busy schedule and yet he, he said to his disciples, no, you're wrong. Don't keep those people from me. I'm going to stop. Tell the parents to bring their kids. I want to bless them. He sat on a well wall in the heat of the day. He stopped. He chose to be present with people. He made time. So that's the first thing, just having that mindset that says, I will not diminish or dismiss. I will look with eyes to see the opportunities I have to listen with people. The second one, or the third one really, counting the grace one, is listen deeply. There's a lady called Kay Lindall. Who, she might be a psychologist, I'm not sure. She's a Christian. And she's certainly an expert in the field of uh, listening. And she makes, I guess, the obvious point that genuine deep listening is very hard to do. You don't need to be an expert to say that. Uh, then she, she goes on to say that none of us are going to suddenly and miraculously start listening well because, you know, you go out through the doors today saying, right, 
I'm going to be a good deep listener from now on in. Yeah, it's not going to happen <laughs> uh, without some intention there. So she suggests three things that we can develop outside of the listening context so that we develop our listening muscles. Three things actually reflected in the life of Jesus. These are the ones I have to remind myself of and drag myself back to again and again. Silence, reflection, and presence. I don't really understand how they work, but they do. So do you have time? Can you make time in your daily, weekly schedule to just be quiet? No stimulation from screens or a book or music. Nothing to distract or engage your mind. If, you, if you're not used to that, I recommend you start small. Set your phone timer or, or some timer on for 10 minutes and give it a go. It's not a... Uh, I'm not talking about emptying your mind and all that sort of stuff. It's just, huh, I, I usually do go down to my armchair downstairs and say to God, oh, I'm here. I'm just going to sit here for 10 minutes. It's that sort of silence. Uh, what about uh, reflection? Do you make time to contemplate and reflect, you know, perhaps on how the day has gone or how a certain interaction played out or to think about something you read or heard, think about the message later on today? Actually, there's a spiritual discipline called the prayer of examine, an ancient discipline, which really helps in this space. And if you don't know about that and you'd like to, please see me afterwards and I'll make sure you get some information. As I said, I don't understand how this all works, but I do know there is great transforming power in silence and in stopping to reflect and wonder and mull over and reconsider. And I know that that I listen to other people more deeply when I'm in a good habit of practising those things. And the last one in this little section, presence. That fine art of being in the actual moment instead of in 16 other places. A really practical thing for you to do here is to pick a couple of uh, almost incidental tasks that might be part of your day, maybe brushing your teeth, maybe washing your hands, and use that as an opportunity to be absorbed in that moment. As Hayden well knows, as I brush my teeth when I'm in one of those phases, I'm usually also, you know, packing my drink bottle and making sure the computer's turned off and you know, I don't know how much teeth brushing I actually do, but it's, it's kind of a messy ta or a task I have to do to get out of the door, but there's 16 other things that I want to be doing at the same time. Pick something in your day and use that as an opportunity to just focus your mind, be totally absorbed by your teeth brushing. It's, a, it's training your mind to concentrate. So practicing silence, reflection, and presence in your everyday is training for the focus and concentration you will need to be able to listen deeply to another person's story. All right, two more very quickly before we close. Listen with compassion. Again, that's a mindset, isn't it? Jesus did it all the time. Even when he had some tough things for people to hear, he listened kindly. And you can know that you're showing compassion when you're listening if you're aware that you're not trying to control, you're not trying to shame, you're not trying to accuse, and you're not reacting defensively to what other people say. They're good indicators that you might be acting with compassion. And in fact, I encourage you to do a little self-test. This is something that I try and do when I know I'm in a situation that requires me to be really focused and listening. Don't lose connection with the conversation, but just every now and again, stop and listen to your own voice. 
Listen to the words. They might even not be um, things you're saying out loud. Listen to the self-talk in your head. And, and listen for tone and listen for words. You know, if you're talking with too much bravado or too much over-assurance, or if you recognise that your tone and your words are representing a need to control or impress, that's what I fall into, you know, impress another person, then that's a warning sign. Or if you find yourself using shaming or harsh or diminishing language, then you have stopped, I have stopped, we have stopped listening compassionately. You might be right, that's not the point. You've stopped listening compassionately. And the last one, to listen with courage. I don't think we should dismiss how much courage it takes to listen, really listen to another person's narrative. It takes courage to sit tight and not defend or explain, doesn't it? It takes courage to let uh, people tell their stories when their stories are, are horrible things. You know, people might want to tell you their stories of terrible things that have happened to them in their, in their families, in, in their work, in their churches, in their communities. So that's hard. It takes courage to sit in those places with someone. It also takes a lot of courage to listen to someone whose worldview clearly embodies everything you do not hold to. <laughs> that's where we really want to convict and, you know, defend. And That takes courage, doesn't it? And it takes courage to accept that when you, what you hear when you are listening may challenge and even change how you experience your life and faith. I reckon that's sometimes why we don't really listen deeply. It might make me rethink. But I want to say this to you. Remember that listening to understand another person does not mean you are saying they will always have the right opinion or perspective. It does not mean you have to agree with their worldview. You may still be right, and they are terribly racist or, or whatever, whatever else it is. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that they are putting forward. The American um, activist and faith leader, Valerie Kaur, puts it like this. She says, listening does not grant the other side legitimacy. It grants them humanity, and it preserves our own. It's about being image bearers. I think that's a really helpful quote, a really helpful thing to keep in mind. And you know, in today's anxious world, many people are trying to bind up their anxiety. I think I do it, I think we all do it, by claiming authority with overconfident and over-assertive talk, which we deliver from a safe distance, far, far away from actual people <laughs> and real circumstances. You know, I have this opinion on this thing. Do you know anyone who deals with that? Oh, no, 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 but I've got this opinion. You know, we deliver these things from, from a safe distance, from real people and real relationships. And can you see how radical it is, though, what Jesus invites us to do? Jesus invites us to lead with grace, to come with him and sit in the stories of each other's lives, listening to understand. And I think that we will see, and we have seen, I'm sure many of us have lived enough life to see that it's in those relational, messy, happy, sad places that we and others are most likely to experience the healing and restoration that Jesus does have the authority to bring. It's in those places that Jesus' authority is. It's what it's for.
So as the, the band get organised to come back up and as we close today, I want to just give you a moment to reflect. I've got a couple of questions for you. You can wander off or you can engage with these. So let me ask you this thing first. What has been one new thought for you today? Or if not a totally new thought, something that maybe has been tweaked or... Uh, brought to your attention again. So what's been a new thought, a fresh thought for you today? Have a think about that. You might like to ask the Holy Spirit to help you stick with that thought over this day and week. Unpack it a bit. And another question, who might be waiting for you to listen to them? Don't lose that name. One more. What do you want to say to Jesus right now? And maybe two sides to that. Can you hear him saying anything to you? What do you want to say to Jesus right now? And can you hear him saying anything to you? May you, each one, know the gift of being listened to by Jesus and by good people in your life who really want to understand what life is like for you. And more than that, may you both bring and be that gift for other people. Thank you for listening. <laughs>